Well, it's a privilege to be able to speak with you this morning. It's Bill being in Colorado. About six, seven weeks ago, he approached me and had just uh, said he was going to be gone this particular Sunday and, and asked me if I would fill in. And um, I asked the question that any normal thinking person would, that was, uh, do I have to speak from Ezekiel? And uh, he assured me I didn't. And Following that, I said, yeah, I I would love to. Uh, So I get to choose the passage. We're going to look at Acts chapter 7. So if your Bible's open to Acts 7, and I'll pray for us and ask God to bless our time. Father, how good it is to worship you, to sing together. We do want to bring glory to you. We desire that because you have placed that desire inside of us. Father, this morning, would you speak to us through your word, through me, your messenger, through your spirit? Would you encourage? Would you challenge? Would you cause us to think more about you, to think better about you? That the truth of who you are would impact our lives in a deeper way. We need you to do that. We confess On our own, nothing will happen. And I confess this morning that only what you do counts. Only what you will do through your spirit and your words. So, would you teach us this morning? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read the last part of Acts chapter 6. And then I'm going to jump to um, the last half of chapter 7. Just to give us a little setting of what's going on. This is around the stoning of Stephen and uh, right in the really a pivotal place in the, in the book of Acts. So, in verse 8 of chapter 6, I'm going to begin. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Verse 1 of chapter 7. And the high priest said, are these things so? And then jump over to verse 35. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel, who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with your fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside and in their hearts They turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
and they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice to, to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it to in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. There's a lot of questions that we might ask. Some of them are very simple in our faith. Questions of a child, such as, where does God live? Where does God dwell? And on the face of it, it sounds maybe simple, maybe simplistic, but it is a little more difficult than that. Even as we consider that God is omnipresent, that God is everywhere, we ask the question, where is it that God lives? Where does he dwell? If you were to ask a person in this time, ancient Israel, an Israelite, you would say, where does God dwell? They would say, he dwells in the temple. He lives there. That's where he is. He is everywhere, but he lives. He dwells there. That is his place. And if you want to meet God, you go here. If you want to see him, if you want to worship, you go there. We might answer that question a little bit differently today, but the implications of the question, where does God dwell, is significant. Because... It has everything to do about where do we go to find God. And in this passage, that is the issue. And the passage turns on that question. Where is it that God dwells? Even as we look at the book of Acts, let me give you a little bit of backdrop and to to understand where we are in in the passage. The book of Acts is really an account of the growth and expansion of Christianity. It it really chronicles for us from Christ's ascension to uh, some years later when we have Paul in a, in a, uh, under house arrest um, at the end of it. He is in Rome at that point in time. And the growth goes from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As Christ had said in Acts 1.8, it was a promise as well as a command as he, as he foreshadowed what would happen. The growth of the church from Jerusalem to the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. We have Paul again at the end in prison under house arrest. 
At the beginning, we see Christ who speaks about the kingdom of God just before he is ascended. And then at the end, we see Paul again at the end where he is speaking about, as it says, preaching about the kingdom of God and about the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything in between the book of Acts is about the growth of God's kingdom, of Christ growing his kingdom. And although there's many different characters that we will come across in the entire book, you'd find that the main characters behind the scenes is Christ who is doing the building. And he is doing it through his, his Holy Spirit and through his apostles. Stephen, as we enter this particular passage, this is a pivotal section. Up to this point, we see that the church has grown rapidly. But it has remained in Jerusalem for a variety of reasons. And it stayed there. As we understand, it can't stay there. It needs to move out. And so the events and the teaching from this chapter really provide the impetus for the further growth of the church geographically as it expands. And so it's, uh, it's important that we understand that as we move into it. Also, it's obvious, but, but uh, Stephen is, one of, is the first Christian martyr that we're aware of. And this is one of the most lengthy discourses, speeches, if you will, in all the book of Acts. Certainly implying the importance that we read it and understand it. And if I would have read the whole thing, there's a sense at the first reading in this whole chapter, you wonder, what is he doing? Where is he going? And different folks have speculated on that because it sounds like he's just kind of rambling to some extent. But the more you look, you realize there's a theme and there's a point to all of his message and what he is saying. Well, the occasion initially that we see is that he's doing these great deeds in verse 8 of chapter 6, signs and wonders. And then it began, he begins to dispute with these Hellenistic Jews the Jews that speak Greek, that is, from these different locations, been transplanted in, in Jerusalem. And you see that there, they, they're angry with him because they can't refute him. They can't speak against him because his wisdom and the spirit from which he speaks is too strong. And obviously we look at that and we understand that it's God's spirit working in and through him. And you can't refute God. You can't win an argument. With God, And neither can they and Stephen in this case. And so they do the same thing that they attempted to do with Christ, or they did. They brought up witnesses who would speak falsely against him, and they, began, they put him on trial. Their desire was to take him out. If they couldn't win the argument, they were going to take him out. And so you see, the two things that they accuse him of is at the end of chapter 6 there. Primarily it is speaking against the law or the customs of Moses. And then secondly, it's against the holy place or against the temple of God that we see. Those are the two things that they, they really boil it all down and they put him on trial. And they say, these are the things that he's doing, although they're falsely, they're misunderstanding what, he's, what he is saying. But that's the, the purpose for his trial. And as we go through this, we'll realize a couple of things. One, this appears to be a defense, that he is defending himself. But we're really going to find it's more than just a defense. It's an opportunity that he has, that God uses to proclaim the message of the gospel and to talk about God and the purposes of the law and the purposes and understanding of the temple. So that's in verse 1, we see the high priest says, are these things so? Are these questions, are these accusations so? Look at that question. It's a yes or no question. Simply he could say yes or he could say no. But he does neither. Instead, he begins in the beginning with the beginning of Israel. And he starts with Abraham. And if you look in verse 2, I'm going to read a couple of verses here. Abraham, is, and then Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, 
Go out of your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into the land, this land in which you are now living. Okay, he's going to go from Abraham, the beginning of the Israel uh, nation. He's going to move next in verse 9 to Joshua. I'm sorry, Joseph. Joseph, as he is then, if you remember his brothers, angry at him, sold him into slavery into Egypt. And look at verse 9. Patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. God was present there with him in Egypt. And then he moves on to Moses, who is the prophet that these folks looked to primarily. His teachings, the laws that God had given him. And if we could, we could find one strain of thought, one thread in this, in this message from Abraham to Joseph. There's a variety of things in there. It's really like the history of Israel, but it has a point to it. And the emphasis is on God's presence with these individuals, with his people, and specifically in places that are outside the promised land. Specifically in places that are not in Jerusalem or not in this holy land, in places like Egypt, places like Midian. These different locations, and that's the emphasis. God is with his people in these locations, which really begins to build his case, if you will. The message of the temple. Where does God really dwell? And we see in this case, as he presents these cases, that he is with his people, even though they're not even anywhere near, if you will, the promised land. And so he calls Abraham, he calls Joseph, and he protects him, and then we see him also with with Moses, who is, again, the primary prophet they look to. Jump to verse 35. We're going to begin here and kind of work our way through. The the narrative changes at verse 35, and and it switches from this kind of historical, you know, account of Israel, and he begins to speak more directly about this Moses that he has just talked about. And in verse 35... And beyond, he's speaking specifically about Moses. And note the language as I read through this again. I'm going to emphasize this point because it's in the text. In verse 35, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you ruler and a judge? This man God has sent as as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles or living words to give to us. He is pointing back to this Moses and he says essentially five different things about this Moses. He says, first of all, this Moses who was rejected, and he's referring to the time that he was rejected when Moses began to step in and he murdered the guy. And then they said, who made you ruler over us? And that's when he headed to Midian and spent his 40 years there. And then it says uh, he this Moses who was both ruler and redeemer. OK, this Moses who performed um Miraculous signs or performing wonders and signs. This Moses who said, God will raise up for you a prophet from among your brothers. And this Moses who received these living oracles, these living words. And what we see here is as they look at this Moses. He's saying, this Moses isn't the point of the law. You have thought all along it was about him. 
And you thought all along that it was about his law and the customs that he established. But even this Moses that I am speaking of was pointing to someone else. This Moses was a type, was a foreshadowing of one who would come and even said himself, God will raise up a prophet from among your brothers. And in Deuteronomy, if you look at that passage, Moses' command is listen to him. Moses was pointing forward, and even in these living words, these living oracles that Moses received, we find in Christ what? The living word. And so the answer to the question, who is it that he's pointing towards, is obvious. It's the simple, basic Sunday school question we know. Jesus. It's the answer that Moses was pointing towards. But in verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside and in their hearts turned to Egypt. So you see... What he was indicting ancient Israel for was this, that they had refused God's leader. They had rejected him and his laws, and they had turned to idols. They had turned to to the idols that they made with their own hands. And so, he deals with Moses and the law initially. Then we move to verse 44, and he begins to deal more directly with this whole idea of the temple. And where is it that God really dwells? In verse 44... Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Key verse, verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. And he goes on to quote from Isaiah 66. You see here, he's, he's accounting about God's dwelling. He begins with a tent. If you remember in the Old Testament, there was an exact pattern that God had given Moses to build this tabernacle, this place that was movable, so that as the people would move, that we would find that God would move with them, so to speak, in his dwelling, in this tent. They would worship there. And if you remember in the Old Testament, God's presence was symbolized by fire. That God was present there. There would be fire that would represent him and his presence over this tent. So he begins with that. And then he goes on to the temple that David longed to build, but God saw fit that Solomon would build. Notice in this too, back to our, this indictment that they have against, against Stephen. He's not speaking against the temple. He's not being critical of the temple. He's only explaining what is the temple? And what is this, this idea? But then he, he concludes, you would say on a negative statement, but it's really a right understanding of what the temple is. And he says, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. God does not dwell in this place. Their understanding about where God dwelled and where he was was wrong. And indeed, it limited his nature to understand that he was there and they would understand him to be other places, but in his dwelling would be right present there. And so that was the, the indictment. And if you go on to see in Isaiah, the Isaiah passage in verse 49 that he quotes, he says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? It's a great question. It, and God's point there isn't what kind of house will you build for me? Like saying, I need a really, really big house. It's like, there's no house you can build. Everything is, it's by my hand anyway. There is no house that can comprise me. There's no house, there's no nation, there's no people, there's no place that can comprise or hold God. That's the point. And as we go on in verse 51, you see that Stephen shifts, if you will, the focus of his attention. Up to this point, he is talking about ancient Israel. 
He is saying, this was their problem. But then he turns right in the face of the ones he's speaking to. And he, he labels them in the same way. In verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. These same issues of misunderstanding the law, misunderstanding the point of Moses, they didn't get it. The whole issue of the temple and God's presence, you don't understand that either. One of the, the points I believe or it's important to make as we think about the temple and God's presence is that if indeed God, his dwelling, is in one place, then control of that place can be made by the people who control that location. If it's geographical, if it's spatial in that sense, those who control access to it control access really to God. And the message here that, that we're wanna, we want to see is that God is not confined by space. And to say that we can limit him to one place so that we control or manage him is to misunderstand the very nature of God. And that's what Stephen's message is to them. You do not control God. You do not manage him. Because he is not in this temple, so to speak. He is everywhere. And that's the implication, if you will. He says, if he's not in temple made by hands, then where does he dwell? He dwells in what? Temple that's not made by hands. And as we understand the message, that the stark difference in the, in the Christian message at this point in time is that the understanding of where God dwells is now in his people. If you guys would look back at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 the very beginning here, we have the Pentecost, the inauguration, if you will, of, of the Spirit being sent to fill His people. It's the new way in which God now dwells with and in His people. And we have these, these phenomena that are, that are unusual, and yet there's a point to them. I'm going to read verse four, the first four verses of chapter 2 of Acts. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and filled it. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What's happening here? First of all, what appears to be these tongues of fire dividing and landing, resting on top of people. The picture is certainly of God's presence now. Instead of the fire that was represented over the temple, over the, over the tabernacle, in one place, we see God now resting, residing in the hearts of his people. In each one, individually, corporately, he is in us. And then what about the languages? The languages. If you read on, you see that there's about 16, 17 different people groups here, uh, or, or Jewish people from different nations with different languages, and they're all hearing the wonders of God proclaimed in their own tongue. They hear it. The picture there is also the spreading this the access to the wonders of God, of who God is, is for everyone. Not just one language, not one nation, not one place, but everyone, everywhere, every language is the direction of it. And so we understand the implication now. It's not that God resides in one place. He resides in his people. And it's not for just one people group. Who are his people? The ones he calls. And it's for everyone, every nation, Every person, and you heard Marcus share this morning about taking this message to these hidden people groups, these underreached groups that God is calling as at work in their hearts. That's the implication of this message. It goes in us and it goes through us. 
And to the degree that we limit access to this, we grieve the heart of God. If you think about Christ in the New Testament, the times that access to him was hindered and denied or the times he was most angry. And you see this incredible anger if you look in Mark chapter 10 when they're bringing their, you know, the kids that are hindered, they try to keep the children from coming to him. And what's it say? Christ was indignant. He was angry that anybody would prohibit them or keep them from coming to him. If you go to John chapter 2 and you see him driving out the money changers in the temple and you find this anger that he has for God, what were they doing? They were obscuring the view of God. They misunderstood the whole point of the temple. And he calls it a den of thieves, but it was supposed to be his father's house, a house of prayer. And they obscured access to him, which is what, what he wants. He wants to use us. He wants to work in and through us to do that. Because there's no geographical location now that God is in more present here than there. He doesn't reside in this building. He resides in the hearts of his people. And the reason we come here is not to come to a building because God is here. We come here because we gather as his people. And there's something that takes place as his people come together. They hear his word as he works in and through us. And then as we go out and we take the message that he has placed in us and the spirit and the life that he lives in us, we are able. He uses us to impact people around us, down the block and around the world. I do hope you guys will come tonight and hear Marcus. And hear what God's doing. Just one little snippet of what he's doing around the world. Stephen, in this situation, is seeking to align the hearts of his hearer with the true heart of God. It's not about limiting access. It's not about controlling God. It's about opening access to him. That God is a God of all nations. He's a God that loves all people. That dwells in people. He's no longer a God of place as much as the God of people that dwells in them. And the worship for everyone, every people group, this is the message that he has. And indeed, Acts is the illustration of this. We're an illustration of this as we understand that we stand on the other side of that. Years later, the gospel has made it from Jerusalem to Lawrence, Kansas. Well, back to our passage. Back to this indictment, this trial that he's standing on. And he's, remember the two things? The law and the temple. They spoke against those two things. What's interesting as you read this, the tables turn. And what we have is not, um, no longer is he on trial, but really he's placed his, those who placed him on trial, he's placed them on trial. The very thing that they're accusing him of, he turns and says, and accuses them of just the opposite in reverse order. Accuse them, first of all, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Spirit. He, he accuses them of having attitudes that are not open to God's moving, to His teaching. They're stubborn, unwilling to bow the knee, unwilling to bow their heads before Him and before the truth. They're unwilling to do that. Then it goes on to describe, the, indicts their actions, uh, persecuted the prophets, killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the, the righteous one, and then they betrayed and murdered him as well. But notice in verse 53, the final kind of indictment. The law that you received, or was delivered as by angels, you did not keep it. The final hammer, if you will, the blow to them was that the very thing that you use as an identification for who you are, 
of following this law to the letter of the law, of, of trying to, to adhere to it. And in fact, that's your pride, if you will. He says, you don't even keep that. You do not keep the law. And how can he say that they miss, they miss the law? Because they miss the point of the law. They miss the direction to which the law was pointing. That is Christ. The law Moses gave to them, and even Moses realized, it's not about this as much as about what it's pointing towards in Christ. As an illustration, it's basketball season, so if you think about a bunch of guys that you've heard about who talk about being good basketball players, loving basketball, playing it to the best of their abilities and and pushing the game to its limits, and you come and you observe them, and there's a bunch of guys running around on a basketball court with the basketball in their hands, but they have nothing to do with the goals, with the hoops. They do nothing with them. In fact, the more you talk with them, you realize that they hate those things. They hate them because they get in the way of their playing and they hinder their ability to play the game. And you try to convince them and say, well, how do you play? You're not really playing basketball unless you realize that the goal of this game is that the ball goes in the hoop. You say, no, we hate those things. We want to get rid of those things. You realize they're not playing the game unless they understand the goal. In the same way that the indictment here is, unless you understand the end of the law, that the law is pointing towards Christ, you can never keep it. You can never do what it's intended to do, unless you understand to which it's pointing, and that being Christ. And in a similar way in our lives and how we live, playing the game can be something we do, but unless we understand that the game of religion is more than just coming to a church on a Sunday morning or in a Bible study, that this game, if you will, this reality is Christ. Unless we understand it's about Him, then we really haven't understood this thing called faith that He calls us to. So He he indicts them on that point and He challenges them in this area. So, this is where we are. There's really a point here, a decision that they have. He's turned the tables on them and He said, you put me on trial for this, but I'm actually putting you on trial for the same thing because you really don't understand this. You don't understand where God really dwells and you don't understand the whole point of the law was the one you murdered the one that you killed, that he was the point. Verse 54, we see the response. If you look through Acts, you'll find there's a couple different responses as truth is placed before people. They can repent of their sin and accept the truth, or they can get angry. And indeed, that's what they do here. 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth in him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out and with a loud voice stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the, of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning him, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Fallen to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. How'd they respond? Full of anger. Enraged. You can't miss the contrast there immediately, the next verse. But Stephen, being full of the Spirit, God was working in him. Same way this anger was moving them and moving them forward. A couple things, a couple points here. One, this vision that he had as he looks up into heaven, what's he see? He sees God, the glory of God, and he sees Christ standing at the right hand of God. The last we saw Christ was Christ was seated at the right hand of God. 
the picture of this sitting is that his work of salvation was finished or accomplished. It was done. And yet here he was standing in his vision as we see him. A variety of things to try to figure out exactly what it means, but, but most hold that what he is doing, there's something special going on here, and it's in reference to Stephen as he is being stoned, as he's being killed, as he sees, as he sees this. In this, final, in this final scene, that Christ is welcoming him home. F.F. F. Bruce says this, Stephen has been confessing Christ before men, and now he sees Christ confessing his servant before God, representing him, bringing him home. It's a great picture to see. Christ, even as this man is being brutally stoned and murdered, Christ is standing, calling him home. It's important that we understand this standing and Christ's involvement in this is not passive. Christ is not wringing his hands, wondering, wishing he could do something different to save him, but not being able to. What we have is a Christ who is on the throne, who is in control, who is sovereign, who is overseeing this circumstance, has watched it all along, and is observing, and is indeed ordaining it and calling it forth. That this is the way his kingdom is to be built. Even in the death, tragic death of one of his own. And that's powerful for us. Because not all tragedies do we have this kind of view. Not all tragedies do we have the sense of the heavens opening and we see Christ welcoming us or one or, or being with us in the circumstance. But it's one we need to hold on to. It's one that we need to remember that Christ is involved actively. As we hit these circumstances in our life, there is no question as to his involvement. And as we hold to that, we have this great hope and faith that he's present, even here, even now, in these circumstances, as dark as they might seem. Let's look to conclude how he died. Christ standing, calling him home. Because the way he died can help us also in understanding how, how do we live? How is it that our lives and to reflect, not him, but Christ in him. First of all, we see him, his eyes fixed on Christ. He is seeing him even as he is stoned. Aware of his presence, aware of Christ's sovereign reign, control over the circumstance. We see him interceding on behalf of those who are stoning him. can't quite understand that. don't understand how I can be praying for asking God to forgive the sins of those who are killing me. Usually it's calling for God's wrath in our own heart. But we see, again, reminiscent of Christ and his presence in and through Stephen. Finally, I think the thing that struck me the most about this passage is there's no sense that Stephen is is missing the point of this. That somehow God is being unjust or that somehow his rights are being violated or somehow... The, the, what life or God owes him is some sort of security or comfort or safety. He accepts what God brings. And I think that's a challenge to me because I wouldn't be so much proclaiming Christ as defending myself. I'd be trying to get out of the circumstance. But he saw that the point wasn't to remove himself from the circumstances as much to use it as God would allow to proclaim Christ. That, that's not what I do. That's the challenge that we see. And that's Christ in us. It's only something that he can do. So we see the way that he died is challenging for us. We learn about the gospel. We learn from his words as well as watching his life. We heard what he said about the law pointing towards Christ. We heard what he said about the temple not being able to hold God. 
that God's presence now is being with his, pe- with his people. He's put on, play God's, uh, on display God's power and his mercy, even in his death, the point of his death. Was there any good that comes out of this, any type of purpose or point? Well, I think Luke has included this in the book of Acts, obviously because he sees it, a significant event, and certainly to display and understand what's happened here in the teaching is important. But there's more going on. Like I said before, the, this is the impetus that pushed the church out. And if you look in chapter 8, verse 1, And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered and throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Do you see what happened? This persecution God had used saw fit that this thing would thrust the Christians out of Jerusalem. They were pushed out of Jerusalem. The persecution drove them out. And what did they do as they were driven out? Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They went about talking about God. The new teaching had informed them that God is no longer just revolved or resident, if you will, in this temple, in this place, in this city. There's nothing more special about this place than any other place. God resides in us. So as we go, He goes with us, wherever He sends us. And wherever He goes and wherever I go, comes His message that comes through me. And that's the intention, the understanding that Christ saw fit, that the persecution was necessary to push them out of Jerusalem. And indeed, we see it continue to to spread through the different layers of the geography and the different people groups. And and Luke, if you were to read on, portrays that for us very vividly in the rest of this book. But then finally, let's look at the character we can't miss um, in Saul. We see what? He's he's holding these cloaks as the people are stoning them, and it says that he is giving approval to this stoning, that he's present He heard what was said, and he saw the way this man died. And most commentators, as as this reference here from Luke, note that the influence had to be there in the life of Saul. That to see this and to hear this, to watch a man die like this, is not normal. There's something supernatural about this, and indeed played some role that God had used in bringing Saul to himself. And so even in this persecution, this whole way that he lived and the way that he died, we find God using it for purpose. To forward his kingdom. To impact lives. We don't always, in tragic situations, have this insight. We don't always see these direct kinds of influences. We don't see that. But we do know for sure that God is with us and he is present. He lives in us. He wants to go through us as we understand that he is the point. Let me pray for us. Father, we confess again that you're good and your work and the ways that you do things are beyond us. To to truly understand those things, um, we can't. But we know there's purpose. We know Christ is present. We know that you are present in us as your people. We know that as we live this life and pursue you, that your desire is that our lives would be transformed and then that they would go forward, that men and women would come to know you, that we would represent you and not limit access to you, 
but provide access to you through our lives as you are at work in the hearts of men and women. We're grateful for your word, for the way that the gospel spread here, the way that it is still spreading today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.